Well, of course, today is, is the last day of 2017. And um, as Kyle mentioned a little earlier, um, we spent a great deal of this year on Sunday mornings in the book of Philippians. Um, and I've also personally spent quite a little bit of time additionally um, in Philippians um, doing some scripture memorization. And then as well, I had an opportunity to spend time studying Philippians um, because a, a little group of us went out to northern Iraq in August and we ran a retreat for some of the workers out there. And so I prepared a number of talks. And since we've been spending all this time um, as a church in the book, it just seemed an appropriate thing to do. And um, I benefited greatly from that. And um, so I felt that, that maybe just finishing off the year, going back and looking again at the book would, would be uh, a good thing for us. Um, studying the book, as I mentioned, has been really good for me personally. And I've been especially impacted seeing a theme that runs through the book this um, during the study this year. And it's something which I guess I knew about and I'd kind of seen peripherally before, but just saw in a kind of really fresh way this time. And that is the theme of, of joy in the book. And maybe you've noticed it too. And I realized that Philippians is really a book about joy. It's a, joy, a book about a man who is incredibly joyful, Paul, who wrote the book, and joyful really in the midst of extreme adversity himself. And then I also saw that his life was guided in many ways by this primary um, goal to bring joy in Christ to those who he was seeking to, um, to, to serve and minister to. And I think that um, a key statement that I, I found in this book um, is in chapter 1, verse 21, where um, Paul says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And as you, if you kind of read down after that, that statement um, in verses 23 to 26, you see him unpack this, this, um, this thing that he says um, as he deliberates between whether he would prefer to live or die. If you just look down um, at verse 23 onwards, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, i.e. To, to live or die. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I've been really deeply impacted by um, verses 25 and 26. The idea that the whole reason for Paul remaining alive was for the primary purpose of continuing with, with the believers for their progress and their joy in the faith. And I especially like the way that the NIV version um, uh, translates verse 26, where he says, uh, through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. So his whole purpose in life was to bring joy to others in Christ. Well, this morning, if you're wondering what to do with your life, or perhaps more likely just thinking about the coming year, 
and trying to establish meaningful goals for 2018, I would like to invite you to learn with me from the life of Paul as he pursues joy in Christ and as he labors alongside others to the same end. So we're going to spend actually this morning primarily in chapter 3 of Philippians. Um, And full disclosure, this sermon was actually prepared for um, the International Church in a City in Northern Iraq. I preached it in August. And um, I think, however, that whether for that congregation or for us, um, what Paul has to say about joy in Christ is deeply relevant. And I've actually asked Ryan and Sophie to come up and um, to read for us from Philippians 3, verses 1 to 14. Um, If you could open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hand in the air. I think we may have some extras, Um, and uh, one will be brought to you. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this or an an already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straying forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, everyone uh, loves stories about treasure, finding hidden treasure, don't they? So whether it be Treasure Island or um, Indiana Jones or maybe shipwreck discoveries. Um, well, there was an uh, article that was published in the National Geographic magazine in 2011 that was in that day. <laughs> And I'm going to read a portion of it to you now. Can you you hear me? Yes. Yep, good. One day, or perhaps one night, in the late 7th century, an unknown party traveled along an old Roman road that cut across an uninhabited heath fringed by forest in the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Mercia. Possibly they were soldiers, or then again, maybe thieves, 
The remote area would remain notorious for highwaymen for centuries, but at any rate, they were not casual travelers. Stepping off the road near the rise of a small ridge, they dug a pit and buried a stash of treasure in the ground. For 1,300 years, the treasure lay undisturbed, and eventually, the landscape evolved from forest clearing to grazing pasture to working field. Then, treasure hunters, equipped with metal detectors, ubiquitous in Britain, began to call on farmer Fred Johnson, asking permission to walk the field. I told one that I'd lost a wrench and asked him to find it, Johnson says. Instead, on July the 5th, 2009, Terry Herbert came to the farmhouse door and announced to Johnson that he had found Anglo-Saxon treasure. The treasure pulled from Fred Johnson's field was novel, a cache of gold, silver, and garnet objects from the early Anglo-Saxon times and from one of the most important kingdoms of the era. Moreover, the quality and style of the intricate filigree decorating the objects were extraordinary, inviting heady comparisons to such legendary treasures as the Lindisfarne Gospels or the Book of Kells. Well, Terry Herbert found uh, an amazing hoard of treasure in a field. And it's very similar to a story that, that Jesus told as a parable in Matthew 13, verses 44. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, very short. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. So both Terry Herbert and the man in Jesus' parable found treasure buried in a field. And Jesus describes the man upon finding it, selling everything that he had in his joy, and then going and buying the field. <coughs> and I think it's a picture of finding Christ, of coming upon and unearthing his supreme value above all other things that leads someone to relinquish everything that they have and to, um, to uh, everything they have in order to go and, and find him and possess him. And I think it's also a picture of someone pursuing joy. It's a conviction that joy and happiness and pleasure is located in Christ and in knowing him. So as I've said previously, um, the book of Philippians is in many ways a book about joy. The, the root word that's translated either joy or rejoicing or rejoice is um, actually occurs 14 times through the book of Philippians. And so we see joy appear in a number of different contexts. I've already mentioned one, and um, we'll be seeing more today. Um, I encourage you actually just to take some time to read through and maybe even highlight all the instances of the word joy or rejoice in the book and just kind of think about them. Think about the different ways that um, joy kind of manifests itself in the life of Paul and also in the life of the Philippians. So we, we just um, spent some time listening to chapter 3. And um, this section of the book seems to be about protecting and pursuing joy in Christ. If you just look, look with me at verse 1, we'll begin to see this. Verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, 
and it is a safeguard for you. The word translated for us finally um, actually could be translated going forward. And we see that Paul is trying to refocus the Philippians on Christ in the midst of spiritual danger. And you can see that he's unashamed about repeating himself. He says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. Well, if joined Christ is our concern also, then I think we will do well to, to heed the, the warnings of um, this section of Scripture and also to learn from Paul as he talks about how he pursued joy in Christ. So to that end, I want us to, to notice three things from this passage this morning. And I hope and I pray that this will help us to pursue Christ as our treasure and our joy. So firstly, we are to put no confidence in the flesh. Verses 2 to 6. Let me just read that again. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Everyone's pursuing joy in one place or another, whether um, someone confesses to be a Christian or not. And this pursuit is founded upon a certain level of confidence that whatever it is, the thing, the person, or the endeavor, will yield the joy that we're seeking. And I think that even if we rightly conclude that joy is, is found in the Lord, it's possible for us to start deriving joy from all the things that are peripheral to Christ, rather than the object itself, rather than in Christ himself. And Paul could see that for the Philippians there was a danger of influence from those who were promoting a gospel of good works. You see what he says in verse 2. <coughs> Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. We know from the New Testament more generally that um, he's talking about those who are basically saying you need the gospel plus some works of the Old Testament law. And in this case, it was specifically circumcision. So it's in order to know, he's saying, in order to know, they're saying, in order to know God, you need Jesus plus. Um, and you could fill in the blank, but some observance, some, some additional thing. And it was a subtle shifting of the center of gravity of the gospel. But notice Paul's response. He actually issues a very strong warning. He calls these teachers dogs and men who do evil. If you've um, read the book of Galatians, basically the same um, teaching is, is being confronted. And Paul calls this message a different gospel. And just as an aside, we see here that um, it's actually entirely appropriate in some contexts, to be strong and direct because of false teaching. 
Paul could see that these were blind guides. And they were people leading people to their eternal destruction. And so whilst they may have been preaching something that sounded very familiar and very close to what was um, what, what was um, previously spoken, actually they were preaching something different. And they were not leading the Philippians toward joy, but actually away from it towards their misery. Well then in verse 3, Paul goes on to assure his hearers and he says that if we're trusting in Christ, then we're exactly where we should be. Verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So we can just see these different ways that he's assuring them. He's saying that, you know, actually we are the ones who are really circumcised. Um, circumcision was an Old Testament initiation rite, a way of entering in to the community of the people of God. But then according to the New Testament, circumcision becomes inward. True circumcision is something that's inward. So in Romans 2.28, Paul says, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul is saying our identity as God's people comes from God putting his mark of ownership on us by the Spirit, not by some external sign that we're observing. We don't have to go and do things in order to become part of God's people. And then secondly, he assures them by saying, we're the ones who truly worship God. According to Jesus in Mark 4, the true worshippers are now those who worship in spirit and in truth. So it's no longer in physical temples. Um, it's no longer with priests and with sacrifices. Christ is the new temple. And he is our high priest. And in his death, he offered himself as our Passover lamb to make atonement for our sins by his blood. So we need to be wary of anyone who comes and tells us that there may be special holy places where we might be closer to God, or perhaps that there are particular people that might be able to give us closer access to God, who perhaps could pray for us and give us some special experience. You know, he's saying that we are those who truly worship God through Jesus. And then see the last thing he says is he reminds them to put no confidence in the flesh. Well, what is that word flesh? I don't know about you, but I think sometimes I kind of think I know what it means, but it seems a little bit kind of elusive and confusing. Well, it's actually a phrase that appears quite often in the New Testament. And I think maybe the reason that it's hard is it's actually used in, in different ways, in different contexts. So actually here, even in this book of Philippians, um, in chapter 1, it's translated simply as in the body, referring to being alive in the world. That's when Paul's talking about whether he's going to live or die. And then, um, if you've read Romans and Galatians, you might... Um, remember a phrase that comes up quite often, uh, the sinful nature. 
And that's that's the same word. It's, it's the word, the, the Greek word, uh, that that is um, the same. And in those contexts, the flow of the argument um, makes it clear that the word is used to refer to the naturally depraved nature of mankind. So there are desires of the flesh and acts of the flesh that are, that are depraved. But here, there's no suggestion of depravity. Rather, it's, it's more mere human nature. The earthly nature of mankind apart from God's spirit. So someone putting confidence in the flesh is someone actually trying really hard. It's someone reaching for the pinnacle of moral and religious development. Um, someone said, it is not man at his worst, but man at his best. Mm. So he's basically telling us we are to put no confidence in our best natural efforts. And Paul wants to underline the importance of this, and he uses his own experience to do that, since he, perhaps more than anyone else, climbed to the summit of life in the flesh. See what he says in verse 5. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So here we have this list of things that at one time gave poor spiritual confidence before God. And if we look at them, we, we kind of see that they're a combination of different things. Firstly, we can see this kind of reliance on pedigree. See what he says? Um, he was raised well. He had a certain pedigree as an Israelite and then even better as a Benjamite. Um, and then we see position, his position in society. He was a Pharisee. He had a title that inspired a level of respect from his peers. And people would have seen him walking around, probably dressed in his clerical um, outfit, and it would have been impressive. But he wasn't just a Pharisee in name only, he was actually a very zealous Pharisee maybe more than anyone else. And he says that he kept the law faultlessly. And in his zeal, he even persecuted Christians, thinking that that was pleasing God. Well, I think that we, we can translate this list perhaps into some things that are a bit closer to us. So in terms of pedigree, maybe it's that we were raised in a Christian home, or we attended church regularly as a child. Maybe we were missionary kids. And then in terms of position, maybe it's you know, the fact that we're a member of a local church. Maybe it's even uh, an office that, that we have in church, something that we do. And then as for practice, um, you know, maybe it's something just like the daily disciplines, the, the reading of our Bibles, maybe memorizing parts of it serving the poor, maybe being active in promoting family values or something like that. But we see that Paul is telling us that there was a point in time on that road to Damascus when his whole system of spiritual accountancy just broke down. All the accumulated profit of the years slumped to rock bottom as he met Christ 
and realized that God's righteousness through Christ was all that he needed. See what he says in verse 7? But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Christ brought to him a new system of counting, such that his, his eye now travels down the list, the list that he previously gave us. He strikes a line under it, and the sum amounts to nothing. I was reminded of Charles Wesley's hymn, where he says, My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Well, we may not be tempted by teachers trying to lure us into Jewish practices, I, I guess probably not. But I think there are plenty of things that we can subtly begin to place our confidence in. I've already mentioned a few of them. I think as Christians, we can subconsciously start doing sums with the things that we do for God, or, or maybe our position or our pedigree. Um, but we learn here from Paul that when all is said and done, the things that we do amount to nothing. We are to put no confidence in our best efforts. Well, perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and we're really glad that you're here. Um, maybe to, to just explain this a little more, what, what I'm saying is that being a good person, you know, that phrase comes up a lot, um, being a good person is, is not enough according to Paul. Maybe to take an example, someone who I think everyone considers to be that good person, um, personified, someone like Mother Teresa. Um, you know, I think we can easily think, surely God rewarded her with a place in heaven. But isn't that the old system of accounting? You know, I don't know if Mother Teresa relied upon Christ for her righteousness. I hope she did. But what I do know is that according to Paul here, if she relied upon the good things that she did to earn God's favor, then sadly they will be of no use to her when she stands before God. So, the first thing that we've seen here is that we are to put no confidence in the flesh. It is a pitfall, and it's a sure way to veer off the road towards joy, away from Christ and away from joy. So you may ask, ask me then, well, what should we do? Well, let's look, secondly, at Paul's example. So my second point is that we are to pursue knowing Christ at all costs. And if you could look with me now, uh, verses 7 to 11. This is Paul speaking. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, on that road to Damascus, Paul realized not only his spiritual bankruptcy, bankruptcy sorry, but that a righteousness from outside of himself 
a righteousness from God was available to him in Christ. Paul found the treasure in the field, and suddenly all his previous efforts were exposed as being futile. It's as if to kind of use the, the treasure in the field analogy, as if he had been laboring in a different field. And in that moment, he realized that all that sweat and toil were completely in vain. In his book to the Roman Christians, he explains the, the gospel more fully. And I think it's especially helpful because in it he lays out an example, an argument that all humanity, um, regardless of their religious effort and privilege, is under sin. And at the end of it he says, what should we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. But then, against these looming thunderclouds of God's judgment for our sin, the rays of the gospel break through. Mm. And so in those, those amazing verses in chapter 3 of Romans, um, this is what Paul says, and it's just, just like what he's saying here in Philippians 3. He says, um, this is Romans 3, verse 21, But now a righteousness from God apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Well, for Paul, this, this realization resulted in a pursuit in a completely different direction. He'd, he'd been zealous, but he would, he'd just been going in the wrong direction before. And so his life completely turned around, and his whole life became about pursuing Christ and knowing him. So look, look with me at verse 8 of um, Philippians 3. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. He found his surpassingly great treasure of Christ, and in his joy he abandoned everything that he had been previously pursuing. Suddenly they were considered as lost to him. You know, he even calls them rubbish. It's as if the, the memory of them is, is, is kind of um, repulsive to him. So what, what did Paul's pursuit of Christ look like? As he talks about knowing Christ, what, what did that mean? Uh, well, I want us to just look at kind of three, three things together. Um, firstly, I think that it was a growth in knowledge of Christ and his work. So from the Damascus Road onwards, Paul... Uh, pursued a deeper understanding and, and knowledge of Christ. And just to be clear, knowing merely facts about Christ is, is not enough. Filling, filling our minds with theological statements of, of truth is, is not sufficient. And we see this even in Philippians in, in chapter 1, where Paul's actually praying for their love to abound more and more in knowledge of depth and insight. So he wants them to have knowledge, but that knowledge needs to be manifested in love-filled acts that are informed by um, 
what is true and what is right. And I think that when we discover Christ, the process begins for all of us whereby our way of thinking needs to change. So I wanted to, for us to think this morning, you know, what are we doing about growing in our understanding of Christ and the gospel? Do you make time to open the scriptures regularly and read and meditate upon them? Do you attend church regularly to be under the teaching of the word? And I'd like to suggest to you that maybe one of your resolutions for this coming year is to, to give yourself increasingly to knowing Christ better through these disciplines. Um, that is one of the things that, that the ways that Paul pursued knowing Christ better. Secondly, another thing that we see here is that Paul was pursuing a growth in consecration. What I mean by that is that knowing Christ cost him something. And it was something beyond the, the loss of the previous things that he had abandoned. Um, you know, he says, if, if, you, if you look here, um, for whose sake I have lost all things. We know that Paul didn't just give up his previous way of life, but following Christ actually cost him a great deal on an ongoing basis. And it's a reminder to us that following Christ um, meant for Paul and it means for us um, taking up the cross. So as Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Discipleship is a, is a high-stakes endeavor, isn't it? Hmm. Knowing Christ means participating not only in his glory, but also in his sufferings. So in the book of Hebrews, uh, we, we read that we are to go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. And suffering can come in, in many different forms as we follow Christ, but I think that the, the point is that we shouldn't be surprised by it and we shouldn't run away from it. See even what Paul says um, here in verse 10. When he talks about what he's aspiring to, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And see this, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So if we want to participate in, in the resurrection life of Christ, we should learn here from Paul that we should also expect to participate in his death as well. Well, the third thing, the third way that I think Paul was pursuing knowing Christ was um, seen in his, his growth of satisfaction. Look with me again at verse 8. See what he says. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So in the context of suffering, I think it's really important to note that Paul was in no way reticent um, about what it was costing him. Knowing Christ was for Paul a surpassingly great thing. And I think we're back at the treasure in the field, aren't we? I just find that image so helpful. Um, you know, 
all the costs and difficulties paled into insignificance compared to what Paul had gained. And when his calculation was complete, he felt like he'd won the lottery or hit the jackpot. And this wasn't a man who was kind of moaning about all the things that he'd lost that he couldn't do anymore. He was a happy man. And I think this is the fount of his joy. He was able to sit in a prison cell and write to the Philippians and be joyful. I don't think you can deny that this was a joyful man. And this wasn't just a one-time um, occurrence. If you remember right back at the beginning of the Philippian church, Paul and Silas were thrown in jail having been flogged, and they were heard singing hymns in their prison cells. There was joy in that experience as well. Well, I suspect that for many of us at this point, um, our daily experience can seem to diverge from Paul's. Um, I certainly um, have kind of felt that. So even though we believe the gospel and we love Christ, we struggle often to be joyful in the midst of pressures and the responsibilities of each day. Well, I think what has helped me as I've um, meditated upon this has been to keep coming back to this picture of the treasure in the field. Christ is that treasure, and he is surpassingly great. Whether we see it or not, he is surpassingly great. The gospel is a surpassingly great message of hope for me, for my family, for my friends, for my co-workers, for my neighbors. Let us pray for greater clarity. And I think as we, going back to, to, to the growing in knowledge and understanding, I think as we do that, as we read our Bibles, as we come, and it may seem mundane to come every week to, to study the Bible, but as we do that, it's almost as if we're clearing away the dirt from the top of the treasure chest, and we're seeing it more clearly. We're seeing Christ more clearly. And I think correspondingly, our problems and the costs become less significant. What we're gaining, we, we, we feel and we experience that what we're gaining is so much greater than anything that we can lose. And, and again, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, I encourage you to search for a deeper understanding of Christ. Because Paul is telling us here that um, Christ is of supreme value in, in all ways, in all things. And that a righteousness is available to us. He is the way to God. And a righteousness is available to us through him and through his death and his resurrection for us. And I would encourage you to, um, to, to, to not dismiss what you're hearing this morning, but to think about it. And I'd encourage you to, to talk to somebody, talk to me, talk to someone you came with, and, and to find out, think about ways as, as you go into this new year, resolve to find out more about Christ and to find out more about his surpassing, surpassing greatness, as Paul says here. So, so far we've seen, my first point was that we are to put confidence in the flesh. Secondly, that we are to pursue Christ at all costs. And lastly and briefly, I want us just to finish by um, noting Paul's forward trajectory. 
Um, so my third point would be that we are to press on towards fullness of joy in Christ. So I think any discussion about joy um, in the Christian life would be incomplete without an anticipation of the fullness of joy that Christians would experience when Christ returns. And, you know, the Christian life is, is a pilgrimage towards joy. I think that's one way you could describe it. Um, rejoicing in the Lord is full of anticipation of heaven where God will wipe every tear away from our eyes. And there will be no more crying and mourning and suffering and pain. You know, Paul himself said somewhere else, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And I think that is, that is completely right. So when Paul talks of gaining Christ, in his mind is all that comes with that, both past forgiveness of sins, present experience of the Spirit's power and comfort and leading, but then most importantly, an anticipation of the glory that will come. And just look down with me at verses 10 to 14. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Well, so much can be said about this, and I'm not going to spend much time. I think Joey preached a sermon on a lot of this earlier in the year that was excellent. I encourage you to go back to that. Just a few things to note. Um, firstly, Paul likens our lives to a race with a heavenly prize. And notice that firstly, it is Christ who has taken hold of us, verse 12, and causes heaven to his team. So we can be confident that if we're trusting in him, that he will guide us through the storms of life and he will bring us safely home to joy. And so God will complete the good work that he has started in each one of us. That's Paul's confidence at the beginning of the book of Philippians in his prayer for them. And secondly, as in any race, the competitors anticipate the glory of reaching the finish line and winning the prize. And that's what spurs them on. It's, it's a pursuit of joy, isn't it? So it's a gold medal. It's a maybe national pride personal vindication. And similarly, as Christians, our race is full of joyous reward. We anticipate Christ returning for us. We anticipate our mortal bodies being transformed and being taken to a new heaven where there is no more death and sickness and loss and pain. Being with Christ for eternity will be the experience of full and interrupted joy. And I think we all know that our joy in this life can be a bit like the kind of emotional highs and lows of the, the Christmas season. Um, you know, the happiness kind of comes and goes, and um, we kind of look back and we kind of wonder, 
what it amounted to. Well, the, I mean, the, the, the great news here is, is that in heaven our joy will be unending and will be full. Mm. And that is something that we should anticipate, that we should look forward to, that we should think about on a regular basis. So to conclude this morning, I hope that these words from Philippians have, have brought fresh hope and encouragement to find joy in Christ. You know, perhaps like the, the bright rays of the sun just kind of breaking through early morning mist that can so easily just kind of keep us in a fog and, and kind of uh, restrict our, our vision and perspective. So the things we've seen this morning is, is that we... Um, that the joy in Christ is incompatible with self-confidence, and that we are to put no confidence in the flesh. We've seen that we do well to strive to know Christ at all costs, and that he is surpassingly great. And like that man who found the treasure in the field, though the costs may be real and that they may be hard, that they are actually insignificant compared to what we gain. And then lastly, we've seen that we have to press on towards fullness of joy. We're running a race, and our prize is far better than any, any treasure that this world could give us. And speaking of which, the hoard that Terry Herbert found was actually valued at 3.2 million pounds, which is about 4 million US dollars. And the courts determined that it was technically treasure, um, so, so they, they took it. Now you can go and see it in Birmingham in England. Um, and that the owner of the field and, um, and the, the Terry Herbert who found it, the courts determined that they should be paid the full value. So they became rich men. Well, unfortunately, the men fell out over the money. And apparently, Herbert eventually started considering the fine to have been a curse to him. Such was the unhappiness that it brought to him. Well, we found a treasure that's so much greater than what Terry Herbert found. And we've been looking this morning at how Christ is infinitely more precious and the source of eternal joy. And I wanted us just to finish this morning by uh, me reading from Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 3, which I think kind of sums up in many ways the things that we've been so let me just read that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you are concerned for our joy and Lord that you have provided Christ who is surpassingly great 
We praise you, Lord, for him coming into this world to live a perfect life and to die the death that we deserved and to rise victoriously from the grave. And he did all of this for the joy that was set before him and that he is bringing many sons to glory. We thank you, Lord, for your work in our lives. We thank you that you have taken hold of us if we're trusting in Christ this morning and that you have purpose, that you will complete the work that you have begun. And Lord, we pray that this year that lies before us would be a year in which we pursue knowing Christ better. And Lord, that in the midst of that, you will bring us to greater joy in him. And Lord, that you would keep our eyes fixed upon the fullness of joy that will be ours when you return and that we um, go to be with you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name.